Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first Listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Guys, we are four days away from the 2020 election, so I can only imagine that if you're feeling anything like I am, you are struggling a bit right now. Things are very intense, but we are going to get through this. We are in this together. We are better together, and we're in the home stretch. And that is why I am beyond excited to bring you a very special episode of Work in Progress that I really hope will revitalize and inspire you the way it did me. Earlier this week, I was lucky enough to sit down and share an incredible conversation with Mary L. Trump. And let me tell you, she is nothing like her Uncle Donald. She's warm, intelligent, thoughtful, well-spoken, sincere. I'm so excited for you to hear our conversation. Mary Trump is a psychologist, business person, and author. She is also the niece of current President Donald J. Trump. While Mary has chosen to avoid the spotlight for most of her life, her recently published book titled Too Much and Never Enough how my family created the world's most dangerous man, thrust her into the spotlight following its release in July of this year. The New York Times bestseller casts a cold light on the many dysfunctions within the Trump family and the impact that they had on shaping the man Donald J. Trump is today. In my conversation with Mary, we discuss her early years growing up in New York, her parents, grandparents, and family dynamics, how at a very young age, it was clear to her that diversity and inclusion made for better communities, her eventual training and experience in clinical psychology settings, the pervasive toxic masculinity and turbulence that existed within her family, 
and the lasting impact that it had on the man that Donald Trump grew up to be. And more. Please enjoy and stay safe out there. How are you doing? I mean, my God, what a what a time, obviously for the world, but I imagine this is especially intense for you. Well, it's so much worse for so many other people. I don't really feel like I have any right to complain about anything. Um, yeah, it's stressful. It's, uh, as we just said, it's exhausting. But at least, um, you know, in terms of my day-to-day life, such as it is, uh, trapped in my house. Um, you know, I, I have n- literally nothing to complain about other than the fact that I'm trapped in my house because this country can't get its act together vis-a-vis COVID. Um, and as for the, you know, the politics and, and this next week, at least I have some agency, you know, um, I have a platform and, and it, I feel like it would be so much worse if I were just sitting here and doing nothing. Um, so, you know, it'll be over soon one way or the other. Although that's not really comforting, is it? No, God, I was, <laughs> I was campaigning in Arizona yesterday and everyone you talk to just has a different feeling. You know, some people are like, oh, this is going to be a landslide. And other people are like, man, it could be close. And then, you know, you see this hideous Supreme Court confirmation yesterday. And, and just before they confirmed her, they slid in that ruling that they'll essentially uphold that Bush v. Gore rule in Wisconsin. And so they just won't count people's votes if they arrive after the day, even if they're postmarked before or on election day. And it's shocking to realize that Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump in this evil union that they've built over the last four years have made the court partisan. That's that's a hard one for me to handle today. I think it's I think it's been partisan since Bush v. Gore. It, it is not an accident that Amy Coney Barrett, the corrupt disgrace that she is, uh, clerked for Scalia, mm-hmm. um, and worked on that case on that yes, Bush, Bush she did v. Indeed, v. although case. I think she's she's more uh, align ideologically aligned with Clarence Thomas, which is one of the many reasons I will never sleep again. Um, so I think what uh, McConnell has done, and I don't give Donald credit for anything because he doesn't know what he doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> you know, as long as he's allowed to tweet and sow division and chaos, McConnell and Barr can do whatever they want. Um, as long as it's, you know, not against Donald's self-interest. Right. Well, it feels to me, and I'm so curious your thoughts on this. It feels to me like as long as they're stroking his ego. He's fine. It's almost like he's a, and granted, he's a very dangerous one, but it's, it's, he reminds me a bit of a dog in that way, in that as long as he's getting his ears scratched, he's not really concerned if, you know, the entire neighborhood across the street from his house is on fire. Mm-hmm. Yes, not to insult dogs, but yeah, he is the easiest mark ever. Um, and like, that's one of the worst things my grandfather managed to do is like, he's made Donald somebody who is eminently useful to smarter, more powerful men. Um, and usually the men who want to make use for, of him 
are not uh, admirable people. So, you know, from Kim, Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin on down to Bill Barr and McConnell, uh, they, he's so easy, Donald is. Um, and like, honestly, like if I wanted to, I could, I could make him totally overlook everything I've said in the book if I just said the right things. To, I have no interest in doing that whatsoever, but it, it could happen. But you know. you know it's doable. Well, wow. So we should we should dive in because I'm I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for making the time. You know, as as we were discussing before we began, we're all really just trying to use whatever platform we're privileged enough to have to save America, which is an insane thing. Cause I used to use my platform to like talk about an environmental fundraiser or maybe promote a TV show. And now I'm like, no, we have to actually save democracy. (laughs) Pretty much. So this is a crazy time. Um, I, like so many people, became aware of you and your story when you began speaking out against Donald Trump. I, I have a hard time calling him President Trump. I Please apologize. don't. It, 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 it okay, great. Crawl. Just call him Donald. Yeah. Okay, great. Trump. So it, it wounds me to do that. So wonderful. We'll, we'll do that together. Um, and for the folks listening, you know, you, when your book came out in July, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man, I thought, this woman is my hero. And who is this woman? How do I not know about her? Because unfortunately, we've had to know so much about so many people in his family and they have cabinet positions that not only do they not deserve to have, but they didn't pass pass national security standards or clearances to get. Um, and, And you largely avoided association with your family out in sort of the public eye but you stepped forward to talk about the danger that you believe your uncle poses. And for the listeners, you, Mary, are the eldest grandchild of the patriarch of the Trump family, Fred Trump Sr. You are the daughter of Fred Trump Jr., who is Donald Trump's older brother, um, the second of Fred Sr. and Mary Trump's five children, of which Donald is one and your father was another. Just, whoa, what has this experience been like for you? And being a part of that family, did you publish the book as as a warning to the American people? Was it something that you felt like you had to get off your chest and and perhaps energetically out of your body? Was it was it all of those things? Had you just had it? You know what what led to this moment for you? Yeah, first of all, just a quick clarification: I was the third uh, grandchild, but the oldest granddaughter. Um, ah, okay. Which is relevant, just because in that position, I was like the least powerful person in the family, because uh, girl and youngest, because my, my grandparents had two different generations of grandchildren, because um, it's just, it was the three of us, my cousin David, my brother, me, and then 12 years later came Donald's children. So like, we didn't grow up together or anything. Ivanka's 16 years younger than I am. So it was just a completely separate uh, experience. Um, so I wrote this book uh, as a deeply concerned American citizen. Um, if I had wanted it, I'm, it was 
important that I kind of rehabilitate my dad's reputation, but it certainly wasn't a driving factor because, you know, the, the things I've been accused of, it's for revenge, it's to cash in, whatever. Um, I could have done that 10 years ago. Donald was still a very prominent public figure and he didn't have the power he has now. So it certainly would have been safer. Um, but I'm, I was never interested in it because, you know, um, I don't really want to be associated with my family in any way. Uh, but after the inauguration and it became clear, not just that he was going to, um, do awful things, uh, he was going to be enabled by a hundred percent of elected Republicans. Um, I, I felt increasingly, um, I don't know what the word exactly is, but um, I felt like I needed to do something. However, I still didn't think I had any power to do so. Learned helplessness being a big thing that in my family, especially among the women in it, um, I needed something concrete, which I didn't have until Suzanne Craig uh, knocked on my front door. Suzanne Craig, the extraordinary investigative reporter for the New York Times, and reminded me that I had in my possession 40,000 pages of documents that could essentially, in her words, rewrite the financial history of the Trump family. And once I had that, once I had something that I could point to, then I felt that I had some agency and was determined to do what I could. And it seemed at the time that writing a book was was the most effective way to do that as as his only niece and as a clinical psychologist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you are at such an interesting position in the family, as you mentioned, now that we've gotten the order right. And I apologize for that. Sometimes with different sections of families, the internet's a tricky place to get the correct information. Um, but it it's so interesting, as you said, being so young and being a woman in a family that clearly has touted sort of the most toxic aspects of patriarchy and, you know, male strength and and this expected kind of female subservience. I imagine that having the education that you do and being a clinical psychologist, you had a wealth of stuff to draw from. What what are the 40,000 pages? Can you walk the listeners through what you're referring to there? Sure. Uh, in 1999, my grandfather died uh, at the age of 93. And two weeks later, I got uh, the will in the mail. Um, and it turns out I was completely disinherited. <laughs> so um, after six months of completely fruitless negotiations with my uncle Robert, who would say things like, it is what it is. Sound familiar? <laughs> Um, your grandfather didn't give a shit about you. I'm sorry. Can I swear? Oh, anything. Yeah. Okay. Cause I was quoting the the merrier still. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and as far as your dad, dead is dead. Like these were the charming things my uncle was saying to me about my father and my grandfather. So, um, I didn't have any choice. I felt because it was so breathtakingly unfair considering how much money there was in the family and considering my dad died when I was 16, you know, so it felt particularly cruel and I uh, brought a lawsuit against them. And in lawsuits like this, there's something called the three, two rule. You get 
you're entitled to all of the financial document, relevant financial documents, uh, three years before the will and two years after because I was disputing the will. So it was my grandfather's personal bank statements. It was the tax returns of every entity in his uh, empire. Um, it was uh, copies of all of the wills and um, all that kind of stuff. So the uh, New York Times was able to piece together with those documents along with a lot of other, I mean, they worked on this for almost two years. It was the most extraordinary piece of journalism I've ever seen in my life. Um, they were able to piece together uh, the truth of the matter, which is that uh, far from being self-made, over the course of my grandfather's lifetime, Donald received uh, the equivalent of $410 million from him <laughs> uh, wow. in the form of um, unpaid gifts, which is tax fraud, and unpaid loans, um, I'm sorry, uh, gifts des designed as loans, unpaid loans, which is tax fraud. And it just also um, uncovered this, this pattern of Donald's failing at something and my grandfather's bailing him out. Wow. What a place and how lucky we are to have such incredible investigative journalism in a time like this, especially when, when Donald and his cohorts are constantly going after the media, calling them the enemy of the people, when really they're just so angry that investigative journalists exist to tell us the truth. I'm curious, because you, in your book, to me, you came at it from these incredible angles, which are the psychology and your expertise in the field, um, almost like an investigative journalist really explaining to us in the public how the family worked. And you also come at it as an individual who grew up in this kind of environment. And, and that's where I'd, I'd like to go back to before we sort of focus on the last four years and this year in particular. You were born in the mid-60s to your father, Fred Trump Jr., um, and your mom. Were you were you also born in New York, or were you in a different part of the East Coast? No, uh, I was born uh, and grew up in uh, Jamaica, Queens, which was a town right next to Jamaica Estates, where my dad and his siblings grew up, where my grandparents' house was. Um, it may as well have been on a different planet, though, because uh, whereas Jamaica Estates was, at the time, 100% white, upper middle class, also I think 100% Christian. There was literally no diversity. Jamaica was uh, lower middle class, working class, predominantly African-American, um, and a much better place to grow up. Um, you know, I that's one of the two most important things in, in my development is that I grew up in a place like Jamaica. It really grounded me. And I took the subway to school. Um, and understood in a way that clearly nobody else in my family did that um, their racism made no sense at all, you know, because <laughs> um, it. I lived in that neighborhood every day and um, walked down Hillside Avenue to get to the subway to take to go to school every day. And um, then I'd go to my grandparents' house and they would just be so casually racist and anti-Semitic and misogynistic that it never made sense to me. Mm -hmm. um, but it was completely mm -hmm. normal for them. 
I think about that a lot. You know, I, I grew up in LA and my dad's an artist and I grew up in a very, you know, diverse and queer community. And I've always been so struck by these homogenous communities that are so discriminatory. And I, re- I think for me, I've come to this sort of sad realization that, you know, there's a reason that these big cities, for example, you know, these sort of bastions of blue, if you will, always vote very democratically because we know our neighbors and we love them and that people who aren't exposed to anyone who's different from them tend to be afraid and tend to to fall prey to the kinds of disinformation that, you know, your uncle sadly traffics in on Twitter every day. I think that you being so aware of the disparity in experience as a child is really fascinating. Loving your very diverse community and and always knowing that there was something wrong with the rhetoric in your grandparents' house. I'm I'm curious what your house was like. You know, I, I know that your father, Fred, was a commercial jet pilot for Transworld Airlines, and your mom, Linda, was a flight attendant. And and as I was reading about them in my head, I immediately, and maybe this is because I do what I do for a living, I went to like the movie Meet Cute. Yeah. I'm picturing like <laughs> Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks and Sleepless in Seattle, you know, like I just, I'm like, God, it sounds so sweet. Like the pilot and the flight attendant in the 60s. What, is that at all? Does that ring true? Have, have I just gone into total fantasy land? Actually, uh, it's, um, it's kind of extraordinary. Uh, they met. When they met in uh, the Bahamas um, at the, I don't know, I can't remember the name of the hotel, but uh, they met at the bar at the pool. Uh, he was still, I think he was a junior in college. And my mom, who had graduated from high school and was currently working, I don't, I think she was working for AT&T or something. Uh, they met and then they had fun together and then that was it. And then a year later, she and a friend of hers went up to New York my dad had graduated. He was working for his dad. And my mother was a flight attendant or stewardess, as they used to say back then, for National Airlines. And, um, you know, they just had this great day, this great few days together. And my mom had a crush on him. And then he, like, totally dissed her. Then she ended up moving to New York because she got transferred there um, to fly out of uh, what's now LaGuardia, but was Idlewild at the time. And, um, you know, they got back together and they got married and they had this absolutely absurd life. He had gotten his pilot's license in college. So even though he was working for his father, which he hated, um, they lived in the city, um, Manhattan, and, um, you know, they would go to the Copacabana with their friends and to all these swanky restaurants. And on the weekends, my dad would fly like literally he would be flying the plane he'd fly them to bimini for the weekend or he'd fly them out to montauk and he'd take them fishing on his boat which he piloted it was just absolutely absurd plus the fact that my my dad was the most handsome man i've ever seen in my life and my mother was beautiful so they were this just a ridiculous couple um you know with the clothes and just the the casual coolness of it all. I actually said to my mother uh, when I was writing the book, I said, do, do you realize how, did you realize just how cool your life was? And she was like, oh yeah, I did. <laughs> so you're all very self-aware, thankfully. <laughs> so was it, 
was that, that all very exciting as a kid? And, hmm. and, and were you also aware that there was something sort of special going on? And, and how did the specialness of your parents, in contrast to that sort of oppressive and, and bigoted environment at your grandparents' house, how, how did you make sense of all that as a kid? Well, unfortunately, I did, wasn't around for it. Um, by the time I was born, it was all over. Uh, it's incredible how quickly it all unraveled um, because in 19, the begin, the end of 1963, after working for my grandfather for three years, my dad realized that, that his father was never going to give him a chance for, for whatever reason. My grandfather didn't like my dad. He had no respect for my father, maybe probably because he was a kind, generous, funny person who had other interests and who was deeply loved by his friends. And in my, my grandfather's worldview, that made him a loser. Uh, so um, in an act of what must have been extraordinary courage, my dad quit and applied to TWA and became a pilot. Uh, he was a co-pilot and uh, was given the... Um, Logan Airport in Boston to LAX route, which was incredible. Um, especially since he came out, he came into it as as somebody who had gotten his licenses privately. You know, he wasn't trained in the military, which eighty percent of pilots at the time were. Um, so, you know, he was just an extraordinarily gifted pilot and boatsman. Uh, but despite how impressive that would have been to almost everybody else on the planet. My grandfather had no respect for it whatsoever and referred to my dad as a glorified bus driver and made it very clear that unless until my dad quit and came back to work for his, my grandfather, uh, that my grand, my dad would be uh, treated um, accordingly. So uh, it's about this time and I wasn't born yet. Uh, this was, about a year before I was born, um, despite the fact that he had this job that was his dream job, um, my dad couldn't take the pressure that was coming from home, and he started drinking and battled alcoholism for the rest of his life, ended up eventually going back to work for my grandfather, where he was continually humiliated. Uh, and then by the time I was born, you know, he was just very miserable and um, mm. never got hold of his drinking. It's incredible the kind of pain that family pressure can put people in to push them into substance abuse. Do you think that it would have been any different had your dad fallen in line the way your grandfather wanted him to? Had he stayed at the company? Or or do you think that being consistently put down and and the and the abusive nature of your granddad, do you think it would have kind of cracked your dad anyway? Honestly, uh, I think that's probably the case because my dad absolutely intended to take over someday. You know, that's what he worked towards. Um, but I don't know when precisely this happened, but my, my grandfather had already made up his mind. My dad just wasn't his kind of person. He wasn't a tough guy. You know, it wasn't a killer, whatever that means in the context of Brooklyn real estate. I don't really know. Um, and he never gave my dad the opportunities that would have allowed my father to have a place of authority in the company. 
And um, even though it was much worse because of what my grandfather considered the betrayal of my father's leaving in 1964, um, if that hadn't happened, I'd, I honestly don't think my dad's trajectory would have been that much different. It may, it may have taken longer, um, but um, it still would have ended pretty badly. Uh, so I think the only potential way things could have had a better ending is if his family had supported his career as a pilot, but that wasn't going to happen. Right. It's an interesting thing too, to think that you could, as a parent, see your child love something and rather than support them in pursuing their interests, be angry that they didn't uh, support yours. It feels like an inverse in the in what's meant to be the parent-child relationship. Yeah, well, you know, sociopaths are adept at uh, using other people towards their own ends. And my grandfather clearly saw his, at least his two sons, because I don't think he really cared about his daughters in this way, um, he saw them as extensions of his own ambition. Right. And as long as they were of use to him, that was fine. And if they weren't, mm. then they got whatever they deserved. It strikes me as being a kind of hybrid of, uh, of an attitude that's pervasive in a monarchy and also in the mafia. You know, this idea of like tough at all costs, you know, be a killer to advance your own interests and and the progeny carry the line and are expected to do so in lockstep. Mm-hmm. How, how did that environment impact you as a kid in terms of how you felt supported or, or what you felt permission to be interested in? You know, if there was clearly punishment for not doing exactly what the family expected, were you nervous to screw up even as a little girl or or did you feel a bit insulated by that because you grew up in a cooler community and and grew up with your parents, you know? Were they different? How, how did the, the sort of stress of, of the wannabe monarchy affect you? Well, I was completely outside of it. Uh, you know, first of all, I, I was protected from the fact that I was a generation removed from the worst of it. Um, and, you know, being a girl, nothing I did mattered, uh, which... You were ignored in a way. Oh, yeah, completely. I mm-hmm. mean, when um, after my dad died, um, you know, there was a tricky few years there. And I, um, I dropped out of college in the middle of my freshman year. And after a year and a half, I really wanted to go back because, you know, I... I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to get my PhD eventually. And, um, you know, I wanted to be a writer. So I went to my grandfather to tell him that I wanted to go back to school. Um, and he said, what do you want to do that for? Why don't you just go to trade school and become a receptionist, (laughs) which is fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's just that it just showed how, not just how little interest he had in me, but how little he knew me. Um, because why should he? Uh, not, I wasn't, it's not just that I was a girl. I also happened to be my parents' child. <laughs> so that was, that was three strikes against me right there. Um, 
so in a way, I mean, I'm not suggesting that it didn't, it didn't have an impact on me, but in some ways it also made things easier for me because when you know that nobody cares, you're kind of free in a way you wouldn't be otherwise, you know? So I was going to do what I was going to do. I mean, maybe it was harder, maybe it took longer, but you know, I was going to be an academic and I was going to follow that path. And, um, they, they had no interest in that. So that's not like they were, they weren't even interested in enough to stop me. Looking back, do you think that you were always interested in people's behavior that maybe observing this crazy family dynamic pushed you into being curious about psychology or, or was that something that you found um, later? Yeah, no, I, I actually, I wanted to be Faulkner. Hmm. <laughs> really. So uh, when I was a kid, um, reading, I, I read a lot. Uh, I started reading when I was three and a half and it was the thing I most loved and did most. It was uh, totally an escape, um, you know, because my, my first love was science fiction. Uh, so it just kind of took me out of um, what was going on, on around me. So my interest initially was to create worlds. Um, and, you know, that kind of got derailed over time. I did go to Columbia to get my master's in lit. Uh, and then um, I didn't get into the PhD program. So I, I just kind of took a break from that. And the psychology was something I was interested. I became interested in it at Columbia when I took a class in psychoanalytic theory. Uh, which was really fascinating, but I'd also like been in therapy forever. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I had the uh, perspective of the perpetual patient <laughs> that taught me a lot. Um, so when it came time that I, I felt I needed to make a decision about what to do uh, professionally, it just seemed like an easy fit um, because I felt I had a pretty decent grounding in it before I even started uh, getting an education. Got it. So, kind of a natural, not so much a progression, but almost a parallel, I imagine, studying English Lit, which I know you did at Tufts and then Columbia. Um, you know, I, I read up on you studying Faulkner and, and the dysfunction of the Compson family that he wrote about. And I was like, I wonder if that's what illuminated it. I was like really trying to figure out where the light bulb had gone off for you. But I, I think it's interesting when you talk about having been in therapy forever, did you start that practice after your dad passed away or was it a little bit later? Actually, it was earlier because, and I don't know, I don't know why. Uh, I have no idea why, but after my parents got divorced, my mother thought that we should go to therapy. I was like five and I, I got I have to be honest, like I didn't care <laughs> that I'd gotten divorced which says something. Um, but all right, so we went to therapy, I guess, to help us work through it. And then, um, you know, after, I guess the next time I went to therapy was after my dad died. And then um, I think it became sort of part of my, um, part of my life in a consistent way um, when I was like in my mid twenties, maybe. Um, so, you know, it went from being something I did only in crises, uh, to being something that, that I thought was sort of a necessary, uh, tool to have. 
uh, no matter what was going on. Um, so, you know, it's something I think is, uh, inc- uh incredibly useful. Um, and I, it's a tragedy that we in this country don't treat mental health with the seriousness it deserves. So I hope that changes someday because, uh, I do too. Yeah. I'm always so struck by how we completely understand that we've got to be active, exercise, you know, take care of your physical health. And the brain is no different. We should look at therapy the same way we look at going to the gym. Like, yeah, maybe I don't want to go, but I should go. I'll feel better if I do go. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it starts with the the weird bifurcation in the West of physical and and mental health and that that, that change. But also mental health in this country is is treated like a luxury, you know, it, and, it, you know, we see this with the, the refusal of um, professionals in the fields of psychiatry and psychology to not not their failure, but the failure uh, to recognize that the state of Donald's mental health or lack thereof is infinitely of infinitely more concern to us than his physical health. And yet the physical aspects of his well-being are all we seem to focus on. It's very, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's very, very strange. And it's, it's the, it's the expertise in mental health that I am so curious to explore with you because I, I know that after, you know, Faulkner turned into uh, real psychological research and pursuit, you, you went to the Derner Institute, um, the Derner Institute of Advanced Psychological Studies at Adelphi. Um, I know that you worked for a year at the Manhattan Psychiatric Center while you were doing your PhD research. You were a contributor to a book on schizophrenia published by Columbia University. You've taught courses in trauma and psychopathy and developmental psychology. I mean, you are an expert on an expert on an expert. And I'm really curious about your studies and work within the field of psychology as it pertains to clinical study and research, Mm -hmm. because I think a lot of people consider mental health, as we were referring to it, to be a bit amorphous or it's based in feelings, but there's real clinical patterning here. And I think it's so important for, you know, the audience and honestly for the world to know that a lot of what you are discussing and spelling out for us in your book is an assessment of the president's psychological well-being. And you have expertise in diagnosing his symptoms uh, from a clinical perspective. So can can we dig into that a little bit? Can you explain to people what that really means, um, what the clinical aspect looks like, what they may not know about the field? First of all, uh, as, as a clinician and as a therapist, um, and just to be clear, I, I've been out of the field for a very long time. So, you know, I'm not currently practicing. I'm not licensed or anything like that. So, uh, you know, this is just based on my experience um, as, as somebody trained in the field and somebody who worked in the field for a long time, but no longer is. Um, it, well, but just because you're not currently practicing, you know, you've chosen to 
move in another direction doesn't mean that all of your education, your degrees, your PhD, and, and your, so. your no, having no. been an author disappears. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you've, you've got it in the bag. Yeah, the expertise is still there. Absolutely. I just want to be clear that I'm not. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, no, and I appreciate that. Uh, so um, when, when we're putting together a clinical picture, we take into account a lot. You know, it's, it's, in some ways it's, it's a, it's a data driven process, which is why it's impossible to diagnose somebody who's not your patient because you need the data uh, gleaned from testing. Uh, So if you haven't tested somebody, you don't have those data. Um, On the other hand though, it's, it's also about story. And to me, and this is certainly where I was, uh, this is my, was my starting point with the book, you cannot understand any single human being outside of the context of his or her family and his or her relationships with parents and siblings and uh, without understanding how the system worked as a whole. So... When we ignore that, you know, um, that's when we get into trouble. When we look at these things in a vacuum, um, it's nonsensical, you know, which is why, um, in a way, uh, when people do try to diagnose Donald, they're doing a real disservice because diagnostic terms have very specific meanings that, that are useless. Um, out of context. So um, I think a lot of times people don't understand just how comprehensive the, the project is when we're uh, trying to understand, diagnose, and treat patients. Um, because, uh, well, you know, why, why should people know that? Uh, <laughs> since a lot of times, like, people think, it's therapy and that's just, which it is in part, but that there's, there are the, all of these other um, avenues uh, of explanation. So when we're looking at a public figure, um, you know, we're not going to get the, the testing data, but we do have a lot at our disposal you know, we have observable behavior. We have uh, reports from other people who know that person. Um, and that's why, you know, that I've said this for a long time. The diagnosis is totally irrelevant in the case of Donald. I mean, who fucking cares? Just look at what he's done. Look at his um, behaviors vis-a-vis the people around him, between him and people who are vulnerable to him, between him and people who don't support him or actively go against him um, between him and autocrats uh, and, you know, uh, in a very different way between him and leaders of our Western alliances. Uh, We have decades worth of video, you know, so um, that can be because, because the clinical picture in order to be useful, has to be comprehensive. We aren't always going to get every piece of it. Like we have some patients who are not capable of giving you an accurate self-report, so you look to the family. Um, obviously, in Donald's case, people closest to him 
are going to lie to you as just as badly as he does. So you then you need to broaden the circle of acquaintances and colleagues and what have you. Um, and then again, just the behavior. Let's look mm-hmm. at the behavior. Right. And I think it's really interesting, you know, you have asserted that Donald has all nine clinical criteria for being a narcissist. Mm-hmm. I, just in study of psychology from my work, have done some study on narcissism and fully agree, and I'm not even a trained professional. And then there are hundreds of mental health professionals and doctors who have released statements confirming the same, signed letters to the public to warn us about his behavior from a clinical standpoint. Um, Dr. John Gartner is a practicing psychotherapist who advised psychiatric residents at Johns Hopkins University Medical School until 2015, who spoke out at a Yale University medical conference and said, quote, we have an ethical responsibility to warn the public about Donald Trump's dangerous mental illness. So many people have come together to collectively discuss this from a clinical side. There is a lot of open and observable delusion in terms of him saying, things as silly and easily disprovable as we had the biggest inauguration crowd of all time. No, you didn't. It was actually quite small. There's photographic evidence to it. You know, Trump saying he's been this great president uh, for people of color when in fact he has not done any real substantive criminal justice reform. He's actually argued in the courts against people eligible for sentence reductions. He's reinstated the federal death penalty. He's blocked people from being released from prison due to the COVID-19 pandemic outbreak who were previously eligible for release. He's pardoned 43 people and only eight of them have been black. (laughs) He... And, and and one of whom he pardoned because he got a famous woman to come and sit in the Oval Office with him, which was an ego boost. It had nothing to do with the woman, um, you know, who he was pardoning. And the Obama-Biden administration pardoned or granted clemency to 200 times as many Black people as the Trump-Pence administration. You know, he has argued that there were very fine people on both sides of Charlottesville when one side was a group of protesters saying that, you know— people's lives matter, that Black lives matter, that we have to stand for racial justice. And the other side of the people at that at demonstration were actual neo-Nazis um, chanting blood and soil and phrases like Jews will not replace us. The The way in which he incites violence, attacks, you know, everyone from Governor Whitmer calling her a dictator, the irony is rich there when he cozies up to Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin, Um, The fact that he says he's doing great things for farmers when, in fact, his tariffs are bankrupting farmers and we're seeing suicide rates in the Midwest go up among farming families. The the, the sort of delusion is so crazy to me. You know, him having the audacity to, to hold up a pride flag at a rally and then quite literally go after protections for the LGBTQ community in such horrific ways, you know, even infringing on people's right to serve in the military and and nominating justices to the Supreme Court who's who have stated that they want to overturn Obergefell, which is the law that guaranteed marriage equity. I mean, it's crazy to me that he can stand and repeat over and over again his lies. And by the way, you know, he admitted in one of the books that he actually didn't write, that he, that was ghostwritten for him years ago, that his strategy to get people to believe his lies is to just repeat them until they've heard them so many times they believe they're true. So I, I think about 
how obvious it feels to anyone who's been paying attention that this person is a clinical narcissist. If people don't maybe know, despite all evidence um, available, including just a few things on that list that I've that I've just listed, can you walk us through what that means when you say there are nine clinical criteria for being a narcissist? Um, to to the readers who are not perhaps as glued to all of the news all of the time as as I I obviously am, could you walk us through? that you know could could you tell the listeners what what that means <laughs> oh man um see what what you just did that 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 list of transgressions and um insults and assaults that you just rattled off is part of the problem because it's maybe one one millionth <laughs> Of the things that we could add to that list. Okay, it's so, a blip. It's it, a blip on the radar of the list. So, you know, that's a strategy. He floods the zone and then the shit gets normalized. Like, it's literally like, yeah, he's lied 20,000 times publicly, but we know he lies. So it's baked into the cake. Like, why? Why? Because that makes it right. okay. But that's what happens. And it happens that way with it. the racism and the, um, the treason and the... Um, obstruction of justice and the violations of the Hatch Act and the violations of the Emoluments Clause, you know? It's like, well, you know, we all know this about him. It's like, well, then he needs to be stopped. Well, no, it's just like people just accept it now. Well, then that's a failure. That's a massive failure. So let's take a step back and talk about the clinical picture. Um, I don't I don't diagnose him in the book for the reasons I stated earlier. It's a technical process. I don't have access to uh, the testing data that would be required. Um, And also I feel that um, when you use words like narcissism, um, most people understand that in, in its colloquial sense, and it sort of undermines the power of the clinical term. Because it's not just somebody who's full of himself because we, you can make a case that anybody who runs for a higher office is a bit of a narcissist. You know, to think that you, of all people, should have that kind of power, you know, doesn't mean you're pathological. though. Uh, and we're talking about pathology here. So I try to walk people through the symptomatology um, on the one hand, so they understand that some of his behaviors are symptoms. They're not just like idiosyncrasies. Um, also to help people understand just how complex Donald's psychopathologies are and just how much comorbidity there is. It's like there is not, he doesn't meet the criteria for only one personality disorder. He potentially meets the criteria for at least three. Um, so, um you know, to say that uh, somebody meets all nine criteria for a particular disorder just means that um, that's that places that person potentially on the extreme end of the spectrum. Like personality disorder, any any kind of uh, psychiatric or psychological uh, 
diagnosis occurs on a spectrum like depression on the, on the milder end you have dysthymia on the other end you have major depression which could result in hallucinations and it, it could present like schizophrenia you know um so same thing with personality disorders meeting all nine criteria is not a good <laughs> not a good place to start doesn't mean we can diagnose the person yet but um it it, it points us in a particular direction What I will say, though, too, is that it's a starting point in this sense. At at the extreme ends of the spectrum, there's a lot of overlap with personality disorders. So um, it almost like narrowing it down to one specific one, almost it, it sort of clinically, not useless necessarily, but it's not as useful as it might otherwise be. And, you know, we end up needing to look at this from the perspective of antisocial personality disorder, which in its most extreme form is what people know as um, psychopathy or sociopathy. I mean, really what people need to know is just that it's really serious and regardless of what the specifics are. And it also uh, needs to be understood that None of this exists in a vacuum. Um, you know, his his psychological disorders are affected by things like stress. Uh, and imagine the amounts of stress he must be under right now. Um, you know, he's not doing the job he was, he's supposed to be doing, but there's still enormous amounts of stress attached to being in his position anyway. Uh, he's feeling stressed from the fact that he's not doing well in the polls or that he's, you know, people are trying to hold him to account or he's not universally beloved. Um, but then there's also the physical stuff that negatively impacts the psychological disorders. He's deeply unhealthy person. He has a horrible uh, diet. He doesn't exercise. He doesn't sleep. And, um, you know, I'm not going to speculate about, uh, any other substance use disorders, but anybody who drinks 12 Diet Cokes a day, which he allegedly does, and I've seen it. I mean, my family, they were like Coca-Cola addicts. Um, you know, that's that's a substance abuse problem. Caffeine is a drug. And if it's impacting his ability to get a good night's sleep, then, you know, he's only, he's going to deteriorate over time. He's not being treated. And it's like everything he does just makes the psychology, the sorry, the clinical picture more dire. Um, Mm -hmm. So people need to understand that he's, he's not, he's never going to get better. Um, And if things are allowed to continue as they are, they're only going to get worse. Right. There, there is no, oh, he'll be presidential soon. That's not coming. (laughs) Wait, wasn't he presidential at the second debate when he didn't rant and rave like a toddler? Such an odd thing. I remember thinking, you know, looking at some of the reviews of his quote, performance. And people were like, well, you know, he was much more sober tonight. And I thought, mm-hmm. I don't care if he tells a hundred lies screaming or tells a hundred lies calmly. I care that he's lying. That's that's what I'm upset about. It, yeah. And that's a huge indictment of the media. Um, we've lowered the bar like to the molten core of the earth, like, seriously, when it comes to this stuff. And I was asked before the debate if I thought that he was going to rein himself in. And I said, no. Um, but what I, I should have been more specific. Um, I knew that 
the mute button was going to force him to moderate his behavior because he's not a raving lunatic, you know? He does have some control, especially when it comes to self-preservation. He went into the first debate with that specific tactic. Just interrupt, be rude, change the subject, because the last thing in the world he wants to do is talk about policy. As soon as he realized that that wasn't going to be allowed. Like what, what purpose would it have served for him to continue ranting and raving like he did in the, it wouldn't. So of course he's not going to do that. Um, so um, you're right. It wasn't that his demeanor suddenly made everything okay. He lied more in the first, the last debate that he did in the first debate. He peddled conspiracy theories. And he didn't know what the fuck he was talking about, even when he did have a chance to talk about policy. So, you know, the fact that he continues to get a pass is just maddening. Yeah. Do you, how do you see that behavior in your uncle relating to the behavior of your grandfather? You know, you talk in the book about how Donald was made in that house, what are what are some of those insights that you'd like to share with the folks listening at home? Uh, just imagine, if you will, that one of your parents is a sociopath, uh, which my grandfather was. Um, and obviously he wasn't my patient, but I'm diagnosing him anyway because, one, he's dead, and two, you can extrapolate backwards from, like, his treatment of my dad, you know, to the beginning um, so, you know, if my grandmother had be, been able to mitigate the horrors of that situation at all, it, things may have ended up differently. But when Donald was two and a half, uh, she got very ill and was essentially absent from his life for almost a year at this excruciatingly crucial developmental period. Uh, so his, his only connection to human love and affection and uh, care was withdrawn from him. Um, and because nobody was willing to or able to stand in for my grandmother, because my gra- my my grandfather had no use for little children, um, he experienced her absence as abandonment, and he was terrified, alone. Um, he felt unloved. He felt unseen. He was not soothed in any meaningful way. Um, And if nothing is done down the road to uh, make any attempt to heal those wounds, then the defense mechanisms he had to employ in order to protect himself from the fear and the loneliness get hardened into character traits. So for Donald, that meant, um, you know, pretending not to care what other people thought, pretending that he was a tough guy, pretending that, um, you know, he wasn't afraid, that he wasn't vulnerable. Um, and, he, and my grandmother, for whatever reason, was not able to heal those wounds. And unfortunately, as Donald grew up, my grandfather actually came to value those traits in him, which made it impossible for Donald ever to be loved in the way he needed to be. Mm. It reminds me of an interview that you did with The Advocate, you talked about how your grandfather believed in the power of positive thinking in a way that, to me, reading 
your explanation of it felt toxic mm-hmm. in the way that, you know, masculinity in and of itself is not a bad thing, but toxic masculinity is very dangerous to both men and women. You, you talked in the article, you said he believed in the power of positive thinking to such a degree that it wasn't positive at all. Because if you're required to think that everything was great all the time, that there was no room for mistakes, that there was no suffering or pain or any emotion, it was severely damaging emotionally and psychologically. It's destructive. And that just, that hit me hard because this idea that the power of positive thinking can, you know, change things for the better, sure, if, if you're trying to become a more positive person, but if positivity is used um, almost as a smothering device, mm-hmm. as, as, a, as a decree in which any other emotion is silenced, in which you're not allowed to ever trip or fall or make a mistake or be in pain or cry, it, it really reminded me of Donald's recent COVID-19 diagnosis and how many people close to him were saying that he looks at illness as weakness, that he he wanted every steroid and every every treatment they'd give him so that he could appear strong, so that he could appear to have gotten over it, even though we saw him gasping for breath on the White House balcony when he came back, that that weakness is not allowed. And it strikes me that even at 74 years old, that he is still afraid of being weak in the eyes of his father. Oh, you're right. That's exactly right. And I would also say that it's made him one of the weakest people I've ever known in my life. Mm. Um, Because vulnerability doesn't make you weak. Not allowing yourself to be vulnerable makes you weak. Mm. Uh, That's a big part of it. Um, Right. But... So I just want to go back for a second, you know, in the ways in which Donald and my grandfather were like. My grandfather was born the way he is. Uh, Donald was raised to share certain characteristics with my grandfather. And the, the extent to which that was harmful to him was exacerbated by uh, the power of positive, positive thinking bullshit. Because um, as you just pointed out, it's so destructive. And for Donald, it wasn't simply not being allowed to be weak. It was what weakness meant. Um, If you were kind, you were weak. If you admitted your mistakes, you were weak. If you were generous, you were weak. If If you had an addiction, you were weak. If you had a physical illness, you were weak. And to have that as your paradigm is really unhealthy. And then on top of that, like you just, you can't even, the range of human emotions you're allowed access to becomes so narrow that it leaves no room for being a fully functioning human being. So then where do you think his fear of difference comes in? Because you, you've spoken about how your family was anti-everything, you know, obviously anti-Black and anti-woman and and as it pertains to you and now to so many people in the world, I'm I'm curious because, you know, for you to grow up being a woman who was ignored in your family, but also to be a gay woman, I I think about the way that Donald 
treats the gay community very similarly to every other community that he abhors. He says, no, no, I'm really here for you. And then he designs policies mm-hmm. to harm those people. You know, as I mentioned earlier, even even folks who are serving in the military, as he claims to be this pro-military person, and he's nominated all of these judges who are intent on overturning marriage equality. And And you talked about in your book, which really just was like a gut punch, hearing your grandmother, um, I, I hate to even say the word out loud, but it's a quote. She referred to Elton John, as you remember. I hate this word so much. Wow. She called him a faggot. And it just is so hideous to me. And and I I wonder... What was your experience coming into your own identity in a family like that? And and now, even as an adult, being an openly gay woman, does your uncle treat you differently because of your identity? Oh, he never knew. Um, I, mm. I saw no need whatsoever to uh, share that part of my life with me, uh, with them, sorry. Um, int- interesting Freudian slip, though. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't an, I mean, it was an issue in so far as I felt that I couldn't do that, uh, of course. Um, but they'd been always been spectacular, spectacularly incurious about my personal life. Uh, so, you know, um, it just didn't, especially yeah, by the time I was an adult, I, I, I had a very close relationship with my grandmother but that was about it. And then she says that I'm like, okay, this, I really don't need to let them know this. I was actually living with my then partner uh, with whom I eventually had my daughter. (laughs) So, um, you know, um, it just, and, and I actually, when my grandfather, my grandfather died, sorry, my grandfather got sick uh, like two weeks before I was supposed to be getting married, married. Uh, So I had to cancel my whole wedding and, but nobody knew. Um, and it just seemed, uh, easier that way because, you know, homophobia was never a subject of discussion when I was a kid because people didn't really talk about it back then. So, um, although my grandmother's comment didn't shock me, it, it was the only surprising thing. It was the first time I'd ever heard anything homophobic from anybody in my family, I think. Um, but when... They're racists and misogynists and anti-Semites. Is the rest of the stuff really surprising? Like, is it really surprising that he anti-immigrant and, or as long as the immigrants are brown, of course, um, or anti-Muslim or anti-everything except people like him? No, it's not surprising. Right. Well, and you see it go, it runs the gamut, as you said, you know, across race, across sexual identity, across ability, you know, I, it's been so crazy for me to, to see the way that uh, sitting behind the resolute desk, he claims to be this law and order guy, but then he goes after our military, you know, bans folks from serving in the military um, based on their identities, and then refuses to acknowledge that Putin is paying our enemies to kill American soldiers. Um and But then, you know, says he's going to throw a big military parade to celebrate the military, but then says, as was reported, that he doesn't want any disabled veterans to participate in that parade because uh, the, the quote alleged to, to have 
left his mouth, which wouldn't surprise me and I imagine wouldn't surprise you, is no one wants to see that referring to soldiers who had been um, injured to the point of being scarred or having burn scars or being amputees, that that no one wants to see them in, in public life. And it's just so, it's shocking to me that there is no room, whether it is identity or personal, you know, ability or disability in the body or race or gender. He just has no room for anyone who doesn't do exactly what he does, look exactly the way he does. Um, I just wonder what you make of that. What are we supposed to do with that? What I make of it is that uh, he's a weak person who will do anything to make himself, to prop up his fragile ego. And if it's, even if it's something as superficial as skin color or not the gender superficial, but you know, if it's some, anything that gives him an advantage um, and puts him in a, a, the more powerful majority, he'll do that at the expense of people who aren't. Um, I think so difference of any kind, as you said, is a problem for him. Uh, when it comes to disabilities, I think that's that's even deeper. And I think it's because he's so uncomfortable in his own skin. Um, the problem for us, though, is that when people have a problem with difference and they're more powerful, it becomes the problem of the people who are different. You know, the other is the one who suffers under those circumstances. Uh, so, you know, if we, if the people in, uh, you know, the majority of whatever the group is are incapable of understanding, one, that they are prejudiced, and two, that their prejudices need to be the work of a lifetime, then the person who is the object of the present prejudice will continue to suffer. Uh, so obviously Donald's never going to do that. And he's surrounded himself by people who aren't going to do that. And again, you know, we're in this situation where I, you know, I hate to, I hate putting it in these terms because it's, it's, uh, it's horrific. It's horrific, no matter what way we look at it, but you know, to use a trite turn of phrase, if anything good is going to come out of this, despite all of the death and suffering, and despite the fact that he's putting immigrants and people of color, especially African-Americans in danger every day of his administration, um, it will be that the cruelty of our prejudices has been exposed to a degree that we can no longer turn away from them, that, that we, meaning, you know, the people in the majority who can actually do something about it, for God's sakes. I mean, uh, like, think about it. Women have the right to vote because of men. Women were not in a position to give themselves the right to vote. We had to rely on male allies to some degree, right? Well, and fight. I mean, yeah, we, we had to make uh, enough noise and demand right. our rights in in enough of a 
publicized fashion that people realized there was no stopping us. Of course. And and what frightens me about what we're seeing, his, his authoritarian tendencies, his desire to be a strong man because he knows he's a weak man, is that he wants to squash anyone of difference from getting a seat at the table. It, it strikes me that he's he must have been the kid who wanted every toy in the sandbox because, heaven forbid, every kid could play with a toy at the same time. I, I, I think, again, and this is just my, you know, casual diagnosis, I'm no expert, but it seems to me that he is so rooted in scarcity mentality that the idea that we could share uh, feels like a loss to him. And that's a frightening thing for a person who's meant to be a president to all people. It's frightening when the president says, well, if you cut out all the blue states, the COVID deaths aren't that bad, even as they're surging in red states. And in fact, the nine states with the most deaths are run by Republicans. They're not, quote, Democrat states, as he likes to say. So it's a, it's, as you said, it's, it's a, it's frightening um, for what it means that someone like him could be in control, but it's not just frightening, it's it's coming with a death toll. Oh, yeah. And I just want to be clear, I don't mean that, you know, women did nothing to get the vote, they just relied on men. I oh, just yeah. meant that, you know, functionally, yes, of the course. vote, right? And, and um, you know, that the same is going to need to be true in the future with other wrongs that need to be righted. Um, so the... Um, Scarcity mentality you spoke about is uh, entirely rooted in um, my grandfather's view that life and his family was a zero-sum game. In that, uh, in that, not philosophy exactly, but uh, in that view, in that worldview, that means that there can only be one winner and everybody else is a loser. Um, you know, this was for many decades the the way that um, American companies were run. You know, it's all about competition and only one person can come out on top. And based on um, his own early experiences and based on what Donald witnessed in my grandfather's treatment of my dad, uh, my dad was seven and a half years older, salute So, um uh, you know, Donald had ample opportunity to watch what happened to somebody who did not uh, believe that winning at all costs was the only thing that mattered. So was determined to be the one who, who came out on top. And in, in my grandfather's mind, that meant you do whatever you have to do. You cheat, you lie, you steal. And we see this with Donald now. It's not simply that he always thinks he's a winner um, or that he always needs to win. He'll do anything to win and then say, you know, I deserve to win. So any means I take in order to make that happen are legitimate. So uh, that's bad. Um, and it also, though, means that he will... Um, he will change the narrative to um, avoid the necessity of having to concede a loss. So um, everything's fine with COVID. It's not a problem. You know, it's just the blue states. Who cares? Uh, 
And it's all a lie. And it's all um, easily, it's an easily provable lie. Uh, but people listen to him. So he's got that advantage. It's such a strange thing to me that people listen to him. And I know. And as I'm, as I'm hearing you explain it, kind of the, the means of behavior that he learned from his father and also from seeing your father get wounded in that family structure, it almost made me visualize a target. Like Donald got to see the target be placed on your dad's back and realize that the target always had to be on someone else. Yeah. For him to succeed, for him to win, you know, he's failing at COVID, so he tries to put a a target on Gavin Newsom's back and Anthony right. Fauci's back. It's it's mm-hmm. so bizarre, even though he's the one who disbanded the pandemic response network. I mean, literally, what an insane thing to do. Yeah. I, I wonder for you, in terms of writing this book, in terms of your honestly, your bravery to have this kind of conversation with the public. Did you feel like this placed a target on your back? Because you knew well enough as a young woman not to talk about your identity, not to not to share with your family that, you know, you were preparing to marry a woman. You you kept a target off your back for a long time. And, and then you chose, you know, as a private citizen and, and as a woman who was defrauded by her own family, as as a mother, you you got you stepped out publicly to say, hey, I need to warn you all about what what the generational inheritance of this kind of sociopathy looks like. Was that scary for you? Has has that been scary for you? Um, no. <laughs> I don't know why. I people so many people have asked me that question that I, I guess I should should have been and should be. But um, you know, it's it was something that I felt obligated to do. Don't get me wrong. I, I know that my family is uh, vicious. And I, I knew that there might be repercussions, um, especially since his, his followers are quite fanatical, as we know. So, um, you know, I took, I took the necessary precautions, but um, I never felt afraid. And I, I, I don't, I kind of take issue with the fact that it, it was brave or courageous. I mean, my, my family aside and the defrauding aside, I am a very privileged white person in a country that, that, um, in which that's a huge advantage. Um, so when I think of bravery, I think of people who raise black children in our racist country every day. I think of uh, parents who traverse thousands of miles of dangerous territory to seek refuge in a country of immigrants that should be welcoming them. (laughs) You know, that's courage. Um, I was just doing what I thought was necessary. I get that. And I, I think about that a lot too, you know, like you, I'm a, I am a privileged white woman. I experience privilege that I did not earn because of the color of my skin. And I, I experienced privilege of, you know, relative security in the world because of a job I've worked my ass off for. And yet I know how intense it can be as a person who also speaks out against the abhorrent behavior of your uncle to receive, you know, threats 
of the nature that I do. And I imagine, as you said, because of the barbaric nature of many of his supporters, um, at least the ones who will vocally harass outspoken women, that it must be our particular kind of onslaught to be on the receiving end of for you. And, you know, I, I think both of those things uh, can be true. And and at least from an outsider's perspective, I'm grateful that despite what I think would have caused a lot of people to be too afraid to say something, you said something. I, I'm, I'm very grateful that you did. Thank you. Um, and, you know, another th- thing that, that maybe puts um, some more perspective here is that, uh, as I said earlier, Donald's like the weakest person I've ever known. So the idea of being afraid of him is just absurd for me to be afraid of him. I understand why other people are um, because he does have power and is willing to wield it. Um but it, it just that like that's hard for me to wrap my head around as, as his niece. Um, and the other thing, and, you know, obviously there was no way to know this would be the case. But um, I am absolutely shocked to say, which is a commentary on how awful things are in 2020. I have not received any death threats. Wow. Yeah. And um, I even have people looking on the dark web just to make sure. Um, so... You know, I think at first I thought that being his niece would would make things more dangerous for me, but maybe it's been a, like, maybe even his followers aren't willing to cross that line because I am family, no matter how traitorous in their view. So um, it'll be interesting, not in a good way, to see if any of that changes after the election. But, you know, hopefully we won't find out um, in one way. If it changes, because like the idea of Donald's being um, unfettered is not a not a pleasant prospect. It's very scary. The idea that this has been him in any way, shape, or form uh, being behaved <laughs> because he needs to get reelected is very terrifying. Yes, it is. <laughs> I, I'm curious, you know, because there's going to be people listening to this who are struggling with their own family members that support Donald Trump. Yeah. And who definitely do not. And I'm curious if you have any advice, you know, to those people who are listening to to how they might speak to their family about about him or 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 how you would recommend that they deal with that. Uh honestly, don't not before the election. I mean, why? You know, it's too stressful right now. I mean, if, if these are people who continue to support Donald and are going to vote for him, what's the point of having that conversation right now? Um, it's too charged. It's too demoralizing. We're exhausted as it is. We, you know, there's an onslaught of horrors every day. Um, and what is it going to accomplish? So I would just wait, see how things play out next week. You know, I'm hoping that it, at least a some percentage of people who continue to support him and will vote for him this time around will, will kind of wake up from the trance they're in. Um, But it's, 
you know, it's literally just banging your head against the wall at this point. And I, I don't mean to be cynical. Um, I just think sometimes you need to protect yourself. And if protecting yourself means keeping your distance, then that's what you need to do. Um, because, you know, personally, I, I, um, if people support him still right now, then I, I can't, I, it, it says too much about who that person is. Um, four years ago, I was willing to give people the benefit of the doubt, especially if they were outside of New York. Um, I'm not willing to do that anymore. So, because now they know who he is. Right. Um, and we're going, it's going to be up to his supporters to make the effort, uh, to figure out why they supported him and um, learn why that maybe says something about them that they may not want to um, own. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you've been so, you know, beautifully forward about supporting equity and equality, you know, even pinning a tweet to your profile that reads Black Lives Matter, it must be said because it isn't implied uh, by Donald's policies. And I'm curious, you know, how how do you try to show up for social justice movements? How do you, you know, try to spend your privilege for the BIPOC community? What What recommendations do you make to, you know, women like us to show up and, and get involved and, and spend our privilege? Um, if, if Biden and Harris prevail, um, you know, cause it's, let's, let's just stick with that. Cause the other thing is just too hard to <laughs> contemplate at the moment. Imagine. Um, we need to focus on becoming allies. Um, if we're men, we need to be allies for women. If we're white, we need to be allies for, uh, black people and people of color, if we're straight, we need to be allies for gay people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because mm-hmm. we, we fail that, at that. Um, because, you know, just as with, you know, women after fighting could only get the vote if men voted to give it to them. Uh, it's the same thing, you know. Um, it's the people with the power have to throw their bodies on the line you know, um, we need to protect people who, by virtue of our privilege, are more vulnerable than we are uh, in a sustained way. You know, it's, it's, it's like after George Floyd was murdered, it, yes, it was very heartening to see the diversity of uh, the people supporting Black Lives Matter, but um, and I don't remember who said it, and I'm sure it wasn't a unique thought, but, you know, why don't you, it would be really nice if you guys supported us this much when we were still alive. Yeah, it would be really nice, wouldn't it? Um, so we always seem to wait for these inflection points, you know, when the election's already been lost or the right has already been rescinded, you know, um, and we can't do that anymore. This to be organized, sustained, and um, passionate, 
you know, it, it cannot be this clinical thing. Uh, it can't be something that we show, just show up for once in a while. Um, and that, like, that's the only way I, I see it because otherwise people are busy. People lose focus. Um, people have other things that take priority. So it gets forgotten. And then, and then the people who need um, protection because our system is so radically unfair and unjust have to struggle alone all over again. Uh, and if that means understanding these issues as something that affects all of us, then that's what we need to do. And that's a matter of education. I mean, racist white people may not understand this, but their racism is really bad for them. And it's yes. really bad for their children. Um, I know it's hard to care, quite honestly, because I'm much more concerned about the victims of their racism. But it also happens to be true. And unless and until we address that and see it that way, we're not really going to affect any um, meaningful change. Yeah, wow, that's beautiful. I'm curious about something. You shared this really beautiful photo in September of your family. Um, and I believe that September 26th is the the day that your dad passed away and it would be 39 years ago this year. Um, and the, the photo really made me smile. It's like this beautiful just image of a, of a young family. And on it, you said, I'm so sorry, dad. And I, I just was curious if, if you're comfortable what what did that mean? You know, in, in at this moment, this year, what is that for? Um, a couple of things. First, I'm sorry just because it's awful, not because it's my fault, but I'm sorry that he was treated the way he was treated. I mean, he was essentially tortured for most of his life and um, destroyed. He was destroyed for qualities that any other parent would have been proud to have to see in their child. So that's pretty devastating, but also, and, and, you know, this is, I mean, this isn't easy for me to talk about, but it's, it's, it's a, an important insight into how dysfunctional families um, affect everybody and, and, and corrupt everything. I grew up believing two myths. The first myth was the one perpetuated by my grandfather that Donald was a brilliant self-made man whose wealth was he had earned all by himself. That was entirely untrue. The second myth I bought into, um, much to my shame, and I'm not entirely sure I will ever get over this, is the myth also perpetuated by my grandfather, that my dad was an alcoholic loser, undeserving of my respect. So for that, I am going to be sorry for the rest of my life. It's a lot to be a human. <laughs> yeah. To try to, you know, just to try to reconcile so many things. And, and for you, given this unbelievably unique circumstance that you're in with your family and, and your uncle, you know, 
having the largest bully pulpit in the world. Just what a wild thing that must be. If if you were going to leave our listeners with a parting message about him and, and about this upcoming election, what would that be? Um, you cannot imagine how bad things will get if he is allowed to continue to remain in the Oval Office. So understand what's at stake and what's at stake is everything. Mm. So that's not hyperbole anymore. Um, the American experiment will end. American democracy, which hasn't really ever existed for most people in this country, uh, will, will never exist. We will not have the opportunity to become a true democracy where everybody uh, is, has justice and is equal. Um, and people who are already suffering will suffer more. And people who aren't particularly suffering will suffer mightily. Um, I don't even, I can't even begin to grapple with how many more people will die from COVID because there will continue not to be a federal response. So just, you know, I don't, again, say this to demoralize anybody. We just have to, we need to have our eyes wide open so we can deal with it. And right now dealing with it means voting and, um, you know, straight blue all the way down the ticket. And then we will be in a position. I don't want to rebuild this country because it's, it hasn't uh, served very many of us. We need to reimagine it in a way um, that will make this kind of, these kinds of tragedies um, impossible in the future. So that, that's what I would say. And, you know, as grim as that all sounds, you know, just hang on to hope, hang on to each other. You know, remember that there is community out there. I know it's easy to forget these days, but, you know, we just need to keep having our each other's backs, even if it's virtually. In place of leaders who lie to us all the time, we need to be really honest with each other. And yeah. that's that's going to go a long way. So hang on to that. Hang on to each other. And mm. let's just get through this. I love that. Well, the show's called Work in Progress, and I'm curious what feels like a work in progress in your life right now. Is everything too too broad? A- <laughs> it's not. Honestly, I get it. <laughs> yeah, it, honestly, it kind of does feel like everything, especially since there's no way to know, there's no way for me anyway to see past November 3rd. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... Um, I guess, you know, and because COVID has kind of put everything on hold uh, in some ways, I guess the work in progress is for me figuring out what my my place is going to be going forward. Um, this is all incredibly new to me, and it's played out in such a bizarre way in such bizarre circumstances um, because of COVID. Um so yeah, I guess I guess that and and figuring out how I can translate, you know, the work I've been doing to be useful uh, going forward. Um, assuming I'm not doing it from Guantanamo Bay. You and me both. Which isn't actually <laughs> funny, is it? <laughs> so gallows humor. It's a dark time. It is indeed. Everyone's doing what they can to get by. Yeah. Wow. Well, I. 
I appreciate the honesty about the gravity of the situation. And, and while I know, uh, you were saying that, that you don't mean it to be dark, I actually have found this whole conversation to be really inspiring to lean into hope and, and to lean into change and to motivate us to just cut the shit and get to work. And I really, I hope that over the course of the next week, we can do that. And then it'll be day one. And then we That's continue, right. we right. continue to do the work. We hold their feet to the fire. We, we hold our leaders accountable. And and I agree with you. I think we never go back to assuming that someone is in charge. I think we have to make sure that we keep a foot on the gas and, and keep things moving forward. Yeah, you're, I, I agree with that. Absolutely. Uh, next Wednesday is not a time to, to relax. It's a time to start the work. I feel that too. I really do. We are four days away from the 2020 election. So that's why I want to talk to you guys about I Am A Voter. It is a civic engagement organization that I helped to co-found. It is nonpartisan. It is incredibly easy to access. And one of the things we're trying to do is make sure that first-time voters have all the information they need and that everyone who believes they're already registered isn't going to wind up finding out they've been purged from the voter rolls when they get to the voting booth. So whether you're a first-time voter or a long-time voter, Let's make sure you're registered and have all the resources you need. To do that, we created the easiest ever text line for you. Text the word voter, V-O-T-E-R, voter, to 26797. We can get you registered to vote in under two minutes. Check your registration. Make sure you know where your polling place is because sometimes they change and give you any other information that you need. So again, that's... I am a voter, and just text the word voter to 26797. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy, powered by Simplecast. 